Blog Talk Radio. Well, this is Greg Masser signing on, apparently live, ACO Watch, a midweek review. Now, this is not supposed to happen. There is a problem, obviously, in scheduling here. We'll have to figure this one out. So I am going to uh, play some music here for a tad and figure out what the heck is happening here. We're scheduled for 11 a.m. Pacific time with Michael Millenson. We're talking today about ACOs. In particular, we're going to talk specifically about uh, his commentary on the uh, Rumpelstiltskin moment that he talks about with respect to reckoning the um, uh, upside potential for ACOs as a solution to our problems in healthcare. So let me find out what is going on, and I shall return post-haste.
Well, welcome welcome back. We're talking today, eventually, shortly here, with uh, Michael Millinson, noted author, blogger, commentator, consultant, academic, generally, all-around good guy. We're going to talk to him today about his article that he posted uh, in multiple locations, up to and including an abstract on our site. But primarily, I think it was issued at uh, the healthcare blog, and then um, and then at the Kaiser Health. Um, that's where I saw it on um, Kaiser Health News. ACO fairy tale facing a Rumpelstiltskin moment. A guest opinion by Michael L. Millinson, president of Health Quality Advisors LLC. Michael will be joining me shortly. There's been a snafu here in scheduling, so I'm kind of impromptu here at the mic waiting for him to uh, sign on. But um, we're going to talk about his article, which I found fascinating, uh, informative, and uh, tongue-in-cheek funny uh, with a tad sarcasm. So we're going to drill into that. But I might take a moment here and just mention that um, uh, this week, uh, actually on Tuesday, we held our first ACO chat by the way, which was um, a smashing success, as far as I can tell, in terms of community engagement and support. We were, um, I'll just spend a few moments on ACO Chat. You can uh, go to acochat.org, and there will be a loop of the tweets posted um, during the hours um, in uh, community engagement. The first session was led by ably, competently, masterfully led by our fellow health tweet, Mark Brown, also known as at Consult Doc. Uh, Mark uh, uh, led the session, came up with uh, basically the three topics that were moderated um, during the hour. And uh, we post some of that information on the blog. You can check that out at go to acowatch.com. Let me key that up, and because uh, I'm um, extemporaneously handling this at the moment, so we did a um, yeah. Mark, uh, so t- topics one, two, and three. Topic one was: Will ACOs ultimately lead to any significant innovations in the world of healthcare? That was then followed by ACOs have a large focus on primary care physicians. Will specialists be relegated to the role of best vendor or, as I reframed, you know, as commodity, if you will? And topic number three was telehealth is mentioned throughout the law, yet current regs are barriers to effective telemed. Can they be overcome? And there was rather lively conversation around all three points. We were... Uh, graciously supported by friends in the community, members of the community, as to giving heads up on the uh, the actual tweet chat, and uh, rather generous conversation uh, in terms of each of the three topics. So I encourage you to check it out. We will host the ACO Chats weekly. Uh, we chose Tuesday at 3 p.m., as our first event, we're not necessarily committed to that day and time. We want to see what works best for the community because this is about engagement and it needs to work. So 
the tweet chat calendar is starting to fill up. If you um, follow any of the activities that are happening out there, notably the Hixom chat, healthcare social media, HCSM chat, the MD chat, and SM chat, Inno chat, Ecosys. These are all weekly scheduled chats where just incredible people come together and share openly from their heart and engage with other like-minded people in the community. And just magic comes out of that. I mean, I'm telling you, if you're, a, if you're data mining, if you're a corporation, organization, or you're, a, you're an entity that has clients for whom you are in the listening and data mining mode in social media, making sense of the noise-to-signal ratio, so to speak, uh, these community chats are um, are incredibly powerful. And I might add that they're incredibly powerful, so don't go in there and F it up <laughs> with spamming and um, and grabbing ideas that are not your own and claiming them for yourselves. Attribution is key, and in this World Wide Web, uh, it's really important that um, it's easy to track the ideology of an idea back. So it's all good. Crowdsourcing is about open sharing, collaboration. That's the intention. That's the power of the medium and, and, the, and, and the, uh, the spontaneous and free from the heart sharing of ideas. That's what makes it so powerful in my experience. So to come in there and kind of rip things off, you know, claim it as your own, or just dump spam into the hashtag because a hashtag is one way to gain visibility, particularly if you're new and you don't have a following or an audience, per se. That's uh, definitely frowned upon. In the world of evolving etiquette, that is a no-no, as we say. So, again, we're waiting for Michael Millenson to sign on so I can pull him into the conversation. Uh, we were originally and intentionally... It may be a mess up on my part, but it's uh, scheduled to go 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, and that would be 1 p.m. Central, which is Michael's time. But somehow, thanks to Nurse Dan, at Nurse Dan, who tweeted, Hey, what up? I'm listening to the show, and it's dead air. What's going on? And I shot back to him, uh... Well, gee, that's odd. It should be 11 a.m. Pacific. So I checked on it, and he was right. It was on the air. So anyway, I'm grabbing the space. So I'm going to, uh, for those of you um, Coldplay fans, I'll give you another run at one of their tracks. And until I see Mike sign on, then we'll go back on the air and pick it up from there. Thanks.
testing. I just I love that part of the song, you know. Am I part of the cure or am I part of the disease? It's certainly a healthcare uh, analogy or metaphor there. Definitely, there is a connecting of the dots opportunity here. So I don't think they had a healthcare in mind. Chris Martin, when he wrote that song, Coldplay. But definitely, the question is. Are we part of the cure or part of the disease in this healthcare transformation ball that Michael Millenson talks about in his article? So we're about two two minutes shy of the hour when we're scheduled to, quote, go live. But this is a podcast. There's a, um, there's a nice live listening audience. Always welcome that. But all the traction here in uh, the social media space or digital interactive space is uh, primarily downstream is digital content. People subscribe to the RSS feed and whatever their feed burner is, whether it's Google Reader or other feed burner, um, listen to it pretty much at your leisure or download it through uh, and listen on uh, uh, your iPod or iPad or whatever. So we are still waiting for Michael Millenson to arrive, and uh, it is entirely possible, Tweeples, that uh, yours truly got this completely wrong, and the only one who's brain dead on the the hour or or scheduled time for this broadcast is me, and that perhaps Michael was there at 10 a.m., as this was originally published. But uh, that's not how I remember it, but it's all good. So let's... uh, Let's do this. I'm going to... We may wind up rescheduling this if Michael doesn't show up in the next minute or so, because that is the appointed hour in my book. Uh, And if not, we'll reschedule him. 
We'll see when what his availability looks like. And for those of you who have not been blessed by the content and the message in his uh, blog post, or article, technically article, ACO Fairy Tale Faces a Rumpelstiltskin Moment, I'll, I'm going to read it to you. If Michael doesn't show up here, so I'm just got my eye on uh, on the screen here to see uh, if he's going to dive in. Okay, so let's try this. I love his wit. So he writes. This is uh, published April the nineteenth in Kaiser Health News, titled "ACO Fairy Tale: A Rumpelstiltskin Moment." The ACO Fairy Tale is drawing perilously close to an unhappy ending. The government's long-awaited draft regulations on accountable care organizations have brought an ugly dose of reality to a concept that seemed always coated with a patina of pixie dust. Now, I love words. I love his wordsmithing and the use of words, so I went up and looked up patina, having some familiarity with the metal arts trades. I uh, I knew uh, of patina in a particular reference of, of that context, but here's what uh, Wikipedia says about patina. Uh, a patina is one, a tarnish, interesting visual, that forms on the surface, another in- interesting visual, of bronze and similar metals produced by oxidation or other chemical processes. And you can really t- attach the uh, political process of Forging this law originally is the Affordable Care Act, and now at the implementation level is rules. So those are the oh Michael's on awesome. <laughs> Hold on, let me let me pull Michael into this conversation. So awesome. Okay, Michael. Let's see. Michael, are you there? How you doing, Greg? Sorry to be a couple of minutes late. Oh, that's okay. I'm uh, I'm I'm glad you're here. I was I was actually um, ad libbing on the air because um, you know it's interesting. I don't know what happened, but I somehow got a tweet from at Nurse Dan who said, "Hey, what's up? I'm on the uh, I'm I'm listening to the show. It's all dead air. What's going on?" Oh no! Said, no, we go live at 11 a.m. Pacific. He said, "Well, no, it sh- it says it's on now." So I. I dialed in there, and lo and behold, he was right. So we've been playing music and talking about stuff, and I just started to read your article. So let me let me welcome you. Let me formally read this introduction, okay? So we'll kick off the show, because I may wind up editing it and just uploading the segment where you and I begin following this right, that's, introduction. That's good. Okay, so... So, so, so this, is, this is editable. <laughs> this is editable. Right. God bless you. God bless me. Yeah. So, so, but we're live. So, I will, I will begin the program, and 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 you got what I sent you via email, correct? Well, may, may, maybe not. It was late. It was earlier this morning, but I did send you the. This is what I. This is what I sent you. So I'll just start reading here. Okay. Okay. okay great. Thanks, Michael. Well, my, my email. My email kind of delays sometimes. That's not, I've been having problems with it. So. Oh, it's. Oh, it's, I see it right now. Okay, just came. All yeah. right. I, so. Okay, so I watch Leo Laporte all the time. He does this all the time. So I'm in good company. 
Okay. <laughs> okay, welcome to ACO Watch, a midweek review. I'm your host, Greg Masters, known to some on Twitter as Two Health Guru and the publisher of the blog ACOWatch.com. This is the 23rd broadcast in our weekly series where we monitor, inform, and as in today, entertain the accountable care organization industry. Joining me today, a special guest commentator for his second appearance on the program is thought leader, author, blogger, lecturer, and consultant on healthcare quality, Michael L. Millinson, president of Healthcare Quality Advisors, LLC, a nationally recognized expert on improving the quality of American healthcare. Millinson is the author of the critically acclaimed book, Demanding Medical Excellence, Doctors and Accountability in the Information Age, and holds an adjunct appointment as the Mervyn Shalowitz, M.D. Visiting Scholar at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. Millinson, Millinson also consults on web-based interactive health care as a principal of Health 2.0 Advisors. More information, see www.healthqualityadvisors.com. Welcome, Michael. I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much, Greg. Absolutely glad you could join us today. So, on today's program, we're going to get a pulse check on ACOs, particularly via the lens of a very cleverly written article published by Michael titled, ACO Fairy Tales, A Rumpelstiltskin Moment. But first, let me try to set some context for Millinson's rationale. He writes, quote, The ACO fairy tale is drawing perilously close meaning perhaps some optimism, editor's note, to an unhappy ending. The government's long-awaited draft regulations on accountable care organizations have brought a dose of ugly reality to a concept that's always seemed coated with a patina of pixie dust. Now, I just love your use of the English language here. Now, I've looked up the word patina in... I think it's, I think it's patina, by the way, but I might be wrong. Is it patina? I, I, I've written it, down. it is patina, yeah. Okay, yeah. patina. Well, there you go. Well, now, that, that could be context-dependent because I'm going to point out here now, according to Wikipedia... Patina is one a tarnish. <laughs> With the image, I just love that image. That forms on the surface of bronze and similar metals produced by oxidation or other chemical processes to a sheen on wooden furniture produced by age wear and polishing or any such acquired change of a surface through age and exposure. Three, on metal, a patina is a coating of various chemical compounds such as oxides or carbonates formed on the surface during exposure to the elements, i.e. weathering. And four, patina also refers to accumulated changes in surface texture and color that results from normal use of an object such as a coin or a piece of furniture over time. So, is an ACO made of wood? a combination of metals, whether ferrous or non-ferrous. What picture are you painting here, Mike? Well, when, when I talked about uh, a patent of pixie dust, uh, what I, I meant was a coating that's sort of been uh, 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 latched onto there, and, and perhaps uh, the bronze analogy might be the, uh, the, the, the best one. And, and really what we have here is a concept that is wonderful as a concept, but that has gone a long, long ways without uh, looking at uh, too many of the uh, uh, details that will turn concept into reality. 
that may be a good thing. It got it through Congress, goodness knows. But now the rubber meets the road. And so uh, my column uh, on the Rumpelstiltskin moment said uh, uh, that the deadlines are coming near. And first we had a Cinderella moment. Well, the ACO turned back into a pumpkin and four mice drawing the carriage. And we called it a Rumpelstiltskin moment because the challenge to CMS is to see if they can take what is this dross of regulations that nobody really likes and spit it into gold so that the uh, fairy tale ends happily. Uh, and and that's really the challenge to CMS, is this whole thing has been a bit of a fairy tale. Everybody loves ACOs, and and uh, they're the, uh, the bell of the ball. And now the clock is about to strike midnight. Uh, the regulations will become final. The ACO, by law, is supposed to go into effect January 1st, 2012. And so will the... Uh, uh, fairy princess remain a fairy princess, or will she turn back into a scullery maid? And a lot depends on what AC, uh, ACS rigs are in their final form, uh, where uh, CMS really gets one more chance to get it right. Okay, lots there. Let's try and unbundle it. So perhaps not for the the wonk out there or those who've been following this, like you and me, kind of with bated breath. What's the essence of an ACO, and how is this setting up this potential disappointment? Well, the, the, the reason the ACO concept is so attractive is that what it does is it says we're going to pay a bundled amount to a healthcare organization run by providers, not an HMO run by insurers, but providers, either a uh, physician group or a hospital. And they're going to take responsibility for all the care of a group of Medicare beneficiaries, minimum of 5,000, over a period of time, minimum of three years. And they're going to take responsibility for inpatient and outpatient, a whole longitudinal kind of thing. And uh, rather than being paid, the more they do, the more they get, their pay will be dependent upon meeting a variety of cost and quality measures. So all of a sudden, we've taken all the poor incentives that have plagued the healthcare system since time immemorial, thrown them away, and had everybody working to achieve measurable gains in cost and quality. What's not to like? Yeah, right. So why the sea change in ACO sentiment, given this unusual unanimity by Republicans, Democrats, doctor groups, health plans, policy wonks, etc.? Has sentiment changed? Well, everybody's in favor of being paid more money uh, uh, on the part of the providers and saving money on the part of the government. It's just when you get down as to who's going to get paid what for doing what and how much money is going to be saved where all of a sudden uh, uh, people start to get unhappy. And, and so if you say to providers, in order to meet these ambitious cost and quality uh, targets that we're going to set for you. Uh, if you meet them, we're going to give you a lot of money. Uh, that's one incentive. If, on the other hand, the targets are difficult to meet, or at least complex, they may not be that difficult, but the complexity is in documenting that you met them. And the amount of money you get for meeting them is not all that much. And the alternative is to go back to our current messed up system that everybody knows how to game for maximum profit, it kind of leaves providers scratching their heads and say, well, okay, if, if I don't do this, I could continue to bill you the old way. 
the health system as a whole might be worse off in five years or whatever, but I'll be better off. And if I do do this, I'm not sure I'm going to be a winner. Uh, do I want to do this? Okay, so who's crying foul? Well, the people who are the most disappointed, I think, are actually those who are the most enthusiastic about ACOs as a concept. A lot of medical groups and some hospital systems really want to change the way they deliver health care so that they're paid this way. They're trying to do the exact same kind of thing with private payers, with private insurance companies. They'd like the government to go along, and they believe that they're more efficient than their competitors, and they can make a lot of money by being more efficient, and that that's the way the marketplace should work. Unfortunately, these regulations are so complex and so careful to protect consumers in ways that may or may not be necessary, that as far as I can tell, hardly anybody wants to be an ACO under these circumstances, which would uh, uh, be a tragedy on the one hand. But on the other hand, the negative reaction is so universal from people who are proponents of this that I think it's going to force CMS to, to change its mind on a lot of things. Given the nature of the process, i.e., this is a notice of proposed rule and not a preliminary final rule that could have been released, right? Um, um, what are your prospects for this thing being amended and salvaged, uh, or is this just going to be on the trash heap of one more failed acronym initiative? Well, that that is the key question. Uh, I I think there's there's kind of I, I go back and forth. So common sense tells you that when you have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to have a national program like this, not a demonstration program, a national program with congressional authorization to change the delivery system the way we've all been wanting to go for years, you'd be a fool to blow the opportunity. That's what common sense tells you. On the other hand, uh, there are other influences other than common sense. So, for instance, some people say, you know what, the way the law is written was not done the right way, and therefore CMS doesn't really have the leeway to change things enough to get everybody back in the, in the, uh, the ballgame. Or, well, the politics of consumer protection are such that CMS doesn't want to change things the way that they should because they don't believe it needs to be changed. Or, and I don't find this at all convincing, but it's what some people think, don't worry if this program fails. The Medicare and Medicaid Innovation Center is also able to uh, fund ACOs, and they'll fund the right kind of ACOs, and then we'll be okay. Oh, wow, that's big. That's, uh, that's, that's huge. I mean, you talk, I mean, I, that had not occurred to me. Tell us more well, about that, Mike. See, the, the, the problem with that is that it's a false safety valve. So on the one hand, Congress in the Health Care Reform Act and the Accountable Care Act set up the Medicare and Medicaid Innovation Center. It gave it uh, authorization, uh, like guaranteed funding of something like $10 billion over, over, over 10 years. And it said, you can set up demonstration projects without having to go back to Congress each time to get permission to do that. Uh, and then if those work, you can put those in, in, into practice. Well, 
that's okay. And that could save the ACOs. But if you can't do it through the front door and you try to do it through the back door, will Congress go along? Will there be funding for the Innovation Center, given that uh, the Republicans have vowed to stop funding for everything to do with uh, Obamacare, even if some of the things they're stopping funding for were originally Republican ideas before Obamacare was passed? Uh, and, and so you're, you're betting a lot of money that the political process will let you do something and that having failed to do it in the front door, you won't spoil everybody's appetite for the whole concept. So maybe, but it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a, an inside-the-beltway wonk bet that I'm not sure takes into account uh, reality. Hmm. I, I'd say that's a pretty high-stakes gamble. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And and, and uh, you know, it, it's it's a gamble with blinders on. You know, it because healthcare policy, it should be abundantly clear to even the most confirmed health policy wonk, is not run by health policy wonks. It's run by the Congress of the United States and the President of the United States, and so. While on a day-to-day -day basis, you may be able to go along your merry way doing risk-adjusted uh, outcomes uh, uh, measurement and uh, uh, DRG maximization and ICD-10 code preparation, as soon as something gets to the level of the Congress of the United States, they can stop you dead in the tracks if they feel that, that it's in their interest to do so. And so uh, uh, ACOs are not a beneath the radar phenomenon. They're above the radar phenomenon. They're an in-the-radar phenomenon. And uh, to count on uh, some obscure government agency saving it in a program that may be defunded by the uh, current House majority and possible Senate majority is a high-stakes gamble indeed. And what are the prospects of the defunding, just uh, just as a follow-up? Well, uh, I mean, nobody nobody knows, right? Uh the, the budget battles go back and forth, back and forth. Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they asked why the genomic uh, research arm of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention was defunded. I mean, per personalized medicine is, 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 is an enormously important area. It's growing. The CDC is one of the uh, non-political agencies that keeps an eye on everything. It's the kind of thing that doesn't take much money whatsoever. It was a few you know, tens of millions of dollars. And the answer is they didn't have any political protection and it was easy to cut something. And so uh, to, 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 to think that this innovation center, which has billions of dollars attached to it, and those billions came uh, in a piece of legislation that the Republicans are deeply opposed to, will not be politically vulnerable as naive. Hmm. And of course, a house divided cannot stand, and that's exactly where we find ourselves with divided government. So, with, with by the way, with by the way, a number of people predicting that the, uh, a number of people predicting, including Democrats, that the Republicans will take control of the Senate in 2012. Well, we'll see if that happens. So, if this is DOA. Where's the overreach and who's screaming the loudest to derail it? Or is it just essentially across the board? Well, I don't think ACOs are yet dead on arrival. I think that, that it's, a, it's a, as you put it, a high-stakes gamble to try to get them through the back door through the Innovation Center. Uh, I think that 
the reality again. The common sense reality is is the administration cannot afford to put out a regulation on a very high-profile program and have nobody do it or a handful of folks do it. Uh, it would be such a public humiliation that it would give ammunition to those who are opposed to the entire health reform effort. Remember, the, the, the people who are opposed to, to Obamacare are not opposed to it because of ACOs or any of that kind of stuff. All that is sort of caught up. They're opposed to it because the way the legislation enables universal access to care. They don't like that mechanism. They don't like what's going on there. That's what the political fight is about. But the effort to invalidate health reform politically does the baby with the bathwater. And it includes the entire legislation, which includes all sorts of technical components for uh, improving uh, the healthcare system functioning that really are ideologically neutral. That doesn't matter. And so when you take something like ACOs, which is symbolic of healthcare reform, even though it has nothing to do with access, and you have a regulation that attracts the attention this has, then you've got to be successful. Uh, the column I wrote that was critical of ACOs was picked up by a number of the right-wing blogs and uh, uh, sort of publications. Uh, the folks who oppose the Obama administration are looking for all ammunition. So the converse of that is, is the Obama administration can't just view this as a technical fix. This is also a political problem for them if they don't fix it. Oh, yeah, you gave them some definite red meat. <laughs> Indeed. Yes, actually, I was, I was actually going to identify you with the Bears camp, but I'm getting an education here that the, the disaffection may be a little more... Um, you know, systemic right now in the stakeholder pool than 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 even perhaps I'm aware of. Well, the the the, the people. I mean, again, if you look at what's been written in the health affairs blog, if you talk privately to people, the people who are critical of it from a uh, really a technical point of view are people who want it to work. Right. Exactly. And 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 and. and but, that, saying, but, that, but that context is not included in the right wing re no, mashing no, so up of of the argument. No, no, that's that's true. So so they've taken they perhaps take what is meant to be constructive criticism and use it for purposes which are not meant to be constructive, but to destroy the Obama administration. I mean that's <laughs> that's that's true. Right. That that it's not it's not used in a constructive context. Having said that, uh, uh, the reality, again, is when the people who you need to say yes don't want to say yes. I talked to someone who was at a very large organization that would be uh, known to be a perfect example of an organization that wants to be an ACO. And I said, well, are you guys going to be an ACO under this? He said, no, no, but that don't worry about it. We'll just be an ACO under the Medicare Innovation Center. Mm -hmm. And besides, we already do Medicare Advantage, and so we don't need to be an ACO. Uh, Medicare Advantage is a program that was uh, put into place by uh, the Bush administration. Now, whether or not it's really private enterprise when people that are in private companies make money because the government overpays them uh, is, 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 is a bit of an argument there. Is that being an entrepreneur or is that getting a hidden government subsidy? 
leaving that side, it's like being a defense contractor and getting overpaid because you take congressmen out to dinner. Does that make you an entrepreneur? Does that make you a government? Yeah, but that's different. So, so, but leaving aside, but leaving aside the reality, right. Point to Medicare Advantage is a shining example of successful private enterprise. Mm-hmm. Well, again, if you're the Obama administration and this ACO program bombs, you're going to have your political critics saying, see, Medicare Advantage worked. This does. Now, actually, one of the, one of the comments that I've made to uh, colleagues is that this program on ACOs would have been better off if the regs had been issued by a Republican administration. And, and the reason is a Republican administration would not have included as many consumer protections as these regulations do. Uh, it would have been a lot easier for people to make money. Everybody would have jumped in. And then in five years, there would have been some reports saying the government's vastly overpaying. It's a ripoff, et cetera, et cetera. And then everybody would have changed the regulations. But people have already been in the program. You could have claimed success. So, unfortunately, the Democrats are far too cautious, and they're actually trying to save money to start with. Well, I hear you there. It makes perfect sense. In fact, you, we can track all the way back to the, the Nixon administration issuing the HMO Act. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when the HMO Act was first issued, and I've done some research in this area, uh, large corporations were uh, were salivating. People like Texas Instruments were thinking of, of forming an HMO. But remember, what did the HMO Act do? It's a good good analogy, Greg. The HMO Act, which today would be known as uh, socialist government intervention in the uh, the health (laughs) care from that noted socialist Richard Nixon, the HMO Act said if an HMO meets these following standards and it's federally qualified and you have more than this many employees and you're offering health insurance, you have to give your people the chance to buy an HMO. Right. That that that's what it said, and of course that's an entree into the market, and entrepreneurs were salivating at the government requiring clients to consider buying from them. Uh, so uh, uh, perhaps ACOs would have been better off had they been offered by a socialist Republican president as opposed <laughs> to a socialist Democratic president. Beautiful, absolutely. So so I'm so with you there. Um, it's we we are really in the rabbit hole here because uh, you know arguments that were traditionally aligned with one side versus the other are, are somehow now situationally and selectively mashed up, you know, in support of their singular position at this juncture. You know, I think that's I, uh, yeah. that's a very accurate uh, summation of, of, of what's happening. Thank you. Coming from you, that's an honor. So and so and really, so you know, m- you know, back to today, the individual mandate is really not about top-down government, the heavy hand of government. That's a market reality. Any actuary, any health plan sponsor would tell you, hey, either you're all in, or you can't have. Guaranteed, you know, no takeaway ceilings and caps and absolutely. and community. Absolutely, I'm an adjunct appointment at the Kellogg School of Management, and we've gone over some of the different uh, panaceas the Republicans talk about. With well, we just buy insurance across state lines, and they don't work from a market perspective. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a free market guy, but you have to uh, uh, also pay attention to the empirical facts about the situations in which free markets work and when they don't, and how you make the marketplace work. All in or all not. Stop cherry picking. So you're, you're you're absolutely correct. 
So <clears throat> you mentioned the uh, the consumer protections. You know, that's probably the kiss of death here near, in terms of the actual overreach. <clears throat> Shared governance. I can just see a medical group welcoming with open arms a consumer, a Medicare beneficiary in their governance process. I actually, mean, actually, <laughs> actually, uh, uh uh, I heard some of so so just to just to recap the the uh, law the regs if I if I recall correctly uh, require that to be a majority uh, of the other representatives although a uh, a savvy individual with whom I spoke about the regs said his immediate thought when he read that they have to be consumers uh, uh, elderly uh, they'd be Medicare beneficiaries his immediate thought was retired doctors. <laughs> yeah, there uh, there's there's the creative mind. <laughs> that's that's the perfect consumer to be a representative, retired doctor. Yeah, yeah. So you know, really, in theory, great idea, you know. But as uh, Vince Caritas noted uh, in a prior uh, conversation, you know, micromanagement and overreach of CMS. So, you know, I guess looking at this. You know, from a political standpoint of, you know, can these – there will be a rule issued, right? That at the end Absolutely. of the day, a rule that will go into the Federal Register that says this is what an accountable care organization is, this is how it operates, and this is how we will certify them. The question is, what are those rules going to – what are those stipulations and conditions going to look like? What, what's likely to survive here? Well, it, 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 it is it is the question, and uh, you know, consumer groups like some of these other kinds of rules, and they don't see them as overreaching. Uh, they see them as uh, necessary protections, and they see the objections from the industry as the kind of crying wolf that you always get from the industry. And I understand why they feel that way. Uh, in this case, I'm a little more sympathetic to the industry point of view, but I certainly understand why the consumer groups. Note with correctness that any time uh, the industry is required to do anything that they're not already doing, they complain that either it's impossible to do or the timetable is too quick. Uh, right. No, I, I I think CMS gets is with the zeitgeist here. I, I'm not I'm not anti shared governance. I I think you know I, I'm just I'm just looking at it from the lens of having sat in these board meetings from medical groups or physician oh, organizations. Absolutely and saying, okay, how's that going to work? Clearly, it is, I think it's a salutary, but I think it's a benefit, personally. Patient engagement, right on. Shared governance, right on. And, 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 and I think patient engagement is going to be critical, whatever the governance structure is, by the way, for, for these things to work clinically. And it's an area that I've spent a lot of time looking at and writing about. For an ACO to work and be successful in holding down costs and in improving quality of care, uh, those who are running the ACO have to realize that 60% of all illnesses, 75% of all dollars are from chronic illnesses. And the only way that you can uh, manage those illnesses is with the cooperation and uh, participation and enthusiasm of those who uh, are patients. And so whoever's sitting in the uh, conference room around that big table, whether they're bona fide consumers or uh, every doctor who ever retired from the hospital down the street – the point is that for you to succeed as an ACO in what you're mainly trying to do clinically, you're going to have to engage patients uh, and truly engage them, not merely uh, provide lip service to that uh, to that uh, goal. 
do you want to? I know uh, uh, you you mentioned that the the this risk reward ratio. You thought it was disproportionate in the regs. Do you, do you want to spend a moment or two and talk about that? Uh, yes. The you know I I don't want to get into the percentage over and percentage under, and it's it's laid out in the regulations is two uh, percent of this or three point nine of that, depending on whether you're rural or urban, or what kind of risk you take on, or. Uh, uh, the phase of the moon, or uh, uh, where you're supposed to count a bit. I understand. I understand that that legal stipulations of that type are easy to make fun of, and they have to be precise, and they have to have those kinds of uh, of details in them. What what is distressing is that at the end of the day, the amount of money that you can make for being good is not all that much, and Part of this, you know, we go back to the free market. Uh, the Republican members of Congress who are physicians are not overwhelmingly free market people when it comes to the kind of market where you buy physician services, right? They're all in favor of higher copays and deductible for patients, but providing power that may drive down uh, the price of physician services for fee-for-service doctors. Well, that's that's something different. And so... The really good systems, and these are run by physicians. I want to emphasize that. These are physician-led systems. They want to take on risk. They want to say, give me X amount of dollars, and I'll risk losing money. But in return, if I'm efficient, I want to make money. Uh, And Congress has been very, very wary of that, as is the administration, as the legislation uh, was wary of it, because uh, those who are fee-for-service docs often believe just the way they believed 60 years ago when the first uh, HMOs were were popping up after World War II, that uh, if you don't have a mechanism uh, of payment that they prefer, you're rationing care. Uh, And so uh, the risk-reward ratio is off. Yeah, I um, spoke with uh, Cheryl Skolnick um, a couple weeks ago, and she wrote a real nice piece at first glance at proposed Medicare ACO rule, what are we missing? And then she goes on to say, and this is in line with this risk-reward ratio you're talking about, is, um, you know, uh, we must be missing something because for the life of us, we can't understand why any rational provider would incur the burdensome costs of establishing and operating an ACO only to then be at risk for the major, I love this term, moral hazard inherent in the proposed ACO structure. Providers who form an ACO, doctors, hospitals, and post-acute care providers, would be at risk for the cost of health care chosen by patients, yet would be expressly prohibited from requiring that patient to obtain care within the ACO. Is that kind of another way to illustrate the imbalance here? I think that that says it uh, that says it beautifully. It's uh, heads I win, tails you lose, <laughs> and uh, that's not that's not a bet yeah. that most folks want to take. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So the sentiment is, yeah. I don't know. It's uh, unfortunately we can't just have a, a rational debate where pros and cons or stand uh, or fall on the basis of merits. It, it's more interlaced with this whole political agenda of gunslinging. I, I think that I, which, which is a shame because it is a good concept. It is a bipartisan concept, uh, but no Republican in this environment, which is a political environment, I mean, uh, is going to come out and say, "Well, okay, let's make an exception from the politics for a moment and, and, and talk about health care." And that's just that's just the way it is. Uh, 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 
one could hope it will change, but it won't change in the near term. We have a presidential election coming up, and frankly, uh, you know, at, at a time when the when the, when you have to have the president of the United States come out and say, "See, I was born in this country," this is not a, an environment in which uh, facts are being considered with great seriousness by those engaged in political debate. And well, uh, yeah. ACOs are, are are no exception, and that that's again why the why the burden is on CMS to get it right. Uh, I don't know whether the legislation is written gives them the uh, flexibility they need. I don't know how much they can back off what they've done without uh, losing political face. But I do know that the objections of the kind of individuals who you've uh, quoted, Cheryl Skolnick, Vince Caritas, uh, uh, others, uh, are serious policy individuals who wish the concept well, and their disillusionment is something that needs to be taken seriously by the Obama administration. Mm, absolutely. And, and it's not exactly uh, as if this is a frivolous conversation, but we are, in fact, at almost 18% of GDP. You've got, uh, you know, uh, deficits as far out as the eye can see if you just assume uh, trends right. absent some intervention. So it's not like we have the luxury of business as usual and just pretend that, that things will just blow over. What are the odds of uh, – maybe we could look at this a slightly different way. There's the regulatory side uh, as per the, the the Affordable Care Act, and then whatever rule comes out in terms of ACOs, there's the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, which you also threw into the mix. And, oh, by the way, there's also the, the, the Medicare Advantage world out there, which is, uh, which is still intact, perhaps somewhat less liberally funded, and maybe be budget neutral – uh, which might put, by the way, an incentive on the provider side to manage care more efficiently versus from an overfunded premium standpoint. Um, will the medical groups, the risk-savvy medical groups, sit on the sidelines and just say, hey, we'll just uh, pretend this ain't going to happen and then we'll see what comes up next? Or will they just basically say, you know, basically this makes sense. We're going that direction. Accountable care is what really it is what the market wants, let's make it happen. I, I think that accountable care will definitely happen. I think the private sector will continue regardless. Medicaid can also push in this direction through the Medicare and Medicaid Innovation Center, uh, and that, that's a significant uh, market for many providers. But the Medicare ACO uh, will not happen to the degree it should, unless they change the regulations significantly. It doesn't mean that the ACO won't happen as a concept in the private sector and in other ways, but Medicare is a pretty influential payer, and a failure to change the regulations will impede the adoption of this concept. There's no question about it. So handicap that. What? What? what at the end of the day, what – What's likely to survive? What What are the indicia of an ACO that you would recommend uh, for July, for January one hundred twelve? I don't know whether I'm going to root for common sense or for uh, bureaucratic inertia and continued tone deafness. I, I, I go I go back and forth. It worries me that some of the policy folks who are insiders who I talk to on the uh, part of some of the health plans or some excuse me, some of the, you know, physician and hospital groups and on the part of some of the consumer groups 
are not as worried as they should be, that they think the Medicare and Medicaid Innovation Center is a safety valve. I think that people can miscalculate the sincerity of the objections and can think that it's crying wolf and that everything will be okay once the final regulation is issued and people will have no choice but to go ahead and do this. So I worry that CMS will mis miscalculate. Uh, and uh, uh, so I'm not willing to bet that common sense will win, although I hope it does. Okay. Well, that's I guess that's about as upbeat as I can get you. <laughs> <laughs> so what what's up in your world these days other than traveling and blog posting? What, what's, what's keeping you busy and engaged? Do you... Uh, I, I'm actually looking at patient engagement with ACOs. I, I think that uh, I'm, I'm working on a white paper on that, and, uh, and I think that looking at actual clinical engagement of patients is a critical concept, and that we need to look at that in a governance sense and in a, uh, a clinical sense in more detail so that as, as the ACO concept becomes more accepted, whether under the current Medicare uh, provisions or others, that the organizations trying to do this, once they cope with all the various regulatory and legal and IT challenges, they can step back and look at the human challenge. How do I engage my patients? And that's 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 kind of where the rubber meets the road. That's the the uh, front trenches of care. And I think that's an area where consumer engagement is critical and, and will be coming uh, uh, something that gets more focused. Do, do you want to preview any of this guidance? I mean, might uh, some of... <laughs> not, not yet. Not, <laughs> okay. so, I've, kind of, I've kind of given sort of an overview, but yeah. I, think, I, think, I think governance and the care itself. Uh, you hear some of the consultant firms when they talk about engaging patients. They need sending them a really neat email. Mm -hmm. uh, not going to do it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Particularly, that, particularly, you're talking yeah. about Medicare patients, and right. uh, uh, no matter how terrific your email is, there are limits to how it's going to change behavior. And and what is required in an ACO? You have a longitudinal care over time, and longitudinal care over time means relationship. That's where we need to go to a, a, a deeper provider-patient relationship over time, over different settings, over different courses of illness. And I think that, that's something that once some of the uh, regulatory brouhaha settles down and the lawyers and the consultants have all taken their share of the, uh, of the pie and, and gone home to, uh, to uh, count their winnings, uh, that's what uh, clinicians will have to do with patients. And uh, we are in an age with uh, all this new technology and the world is flat because now, uh, you know, with a blog or a tweet, you can reach someone who you otherwise would have to jump through hoops over and over again to maybe get a shot uh, at connecting with. You know, it seems like we're in this interconnected world and those possibilities are not just theories. They're happening every day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, good. We will look forward to that, Michael. I, uh, uh I was thinking when you said the and what that looks like uh, is a, a really good email. I was thinking back to the medical staff uh, metaphor of the best minutes money can buy. Uh, you know that kind of the same mindset. You know, <laughs> let's write a good uh, email here and send it out, and that'll be uh, the de facto evidence of patient engagement. So, <laughs> right. 
You're good. Huh? Okay, well, Michael, I want to thank you for joining us today on your second appearance here on the program. Love your insights. Love your work. Always I'm a big fan of what you do and just delighted you were able to make yourself available today. Thanks so much. I appreciate being uh, able to chat with you, Greg. Always a pleasure. Okay, Michael. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Well, that was Michael Millenson. A delightful chap. Really uh, loved talking with him. Met him uh, in person for the first time at the Health 2.0 conference up in San Francisco. And uh, just uh, really enjoy uh, um, engagement with with Michael. So that's it for today. We're going to wrap it up. Sorry for the technical difficulties uh, if you experienced any of them on the live broadcast. Meanwhile, we will continue this on our regular time next week. That's Wednesday at 11 a.m., uh, Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern. Today we're broadcasting on Thursday, but we usually do this on Wednesday. And I just want to call a reminder to acochat.org. We held our first uh, first tweet chat on ACOs on Tuesday. That was moderated by Mark Brown, MD, a.k.a. at ConsultDoc on Twitter. And we had a rather lively discussion, so you could check out the Loop tweet stream on ACO. Uh, chat.org and please join us Tuesdays 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Again, this is Greg Masters for ACO Watch and Midweek Review. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.